Zach, tell me if this looks familiar. I don't know what you're doing with your hands. Oh, I'm doing the try to turn this magic sink on that has a force <laughs> sensor. I, I feel like you this. You probably thought I was doing the hand jive. I, yeah, I felt like it was some sort of dance. Yeah, or, or maybe magic sorcery summoning a yeah. demigod or some kind. Stupefy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I, uh, I had a run-in. Really? The other day. With what or who? With uh, a particular sink. Okay. I won't name names. Yeah. W will you name the building it was in? I couldn't remember. Okay. If, I, if you paid right. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will not. But name. I'll say PetSmart. Okay. I'm just kidding. I, haven't I promise you, you have not been in a PetSmart. Probably <laughs> seven to ten years I've not been in a yeah. PetSmart. Yeah, no need. I'm highly allergic to most things. Anyway, Zach, <laughs> there is an important moment in a public restroom that I look forward to, and that is when the water hits my hands and it's warm. <laughs> there is nothing worse than a mm. when it, when it comes out as ice chunks, yeah, frozen water, and you're like, dang, my hands are kind of cold. Like oh, I'm about to warm up under the sink. Oh, I just had a run in with Frozone himself, mm. Mm -hmm. and he just shook my hand. I think you have a different issue with your glands or on your hands. You you have yeah. issues. I've, I uh, I have bad circulation from time to time. I think I've been you known do. To have some clammy hands. I think so. And it helps when there's warm water to just wash away my clams. <laughs> <laughs> But that's not always the case. Anyways, yeah. the big problem with the sink that I encountered is that it was too fancy for its own good. Explain. Picture this, Zach. Okay. Close your eyes and dream they're, with me. They're you walk in. It's just a nice urinal. You do what you need to do. <laughs> you know what what makes a urinal nice? Uh, I don't know. I don't think we can. <laughs> We're uh, this is a PG audience. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, anyways, we you after you've completed all that was to be done at the other items in the restroom. Mm-hmm. Whatever that Baby was. changing station yeah. or yeah, anything. You know, sometimes there's like those medicine where you put a coin in, you get a little like yeah, ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. Like whatever you guys do in the bathroom. Yeah. Blow your nose with a Kleenex. Oh, or or, toilet, or one ply toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started with PTSD. Um, you go to the sink and it is this bronze, I mean scepter looking mm. bowl. Joanna Gaines put it in there yeah, herself. I mean, Joanna Gaines hand forged it. Yeah. With. I mean, love and care. Yeah, of and course. That's all she pristine. can. Mm. And it's about three inches deep mm. and 70 inches wide unnecessarily. <laughs> yep. It's like, if, it's like a plate, Zach. Mm -hmm. It's like a plate with a hole in the middle. Yep. And I see this and I'm like, all right, instantly I know my shirt's going to – I'm going to walk away with a soaked shirt. <laughs> Nothing against Joanna. Yeah, no. I'm sure she's great. She's got great style yeah. but not as good practicality. But I need my shirt dry because I'm eating at a restaurant or yeah. out in public. No, and no, they're going to no, think no. that I did what some people do in the bathroom on my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, if you're picking up – Nothing is more embarrassing than that. We keep it PG. Yeah, of course, of course. But anyways, I go and I stick my hand under what I think is the faucet. Soap comes out. Oh. Tough start. Yeah. Then from there, I'm looking. I see this like cryptic hole in the wall that is like just a tube, and I'm like, I guess there's water. Then I like start touching it and like putting my hands all around it, and I have no idea where the water is. Like, where, and how where is how activation? to make yeah how to make the water. Come and I out. start yeah. I start speaking French because mm. I'm like maybe this is a fancy restaurant. Yeah, what do you say in French? I said muy bien. <laughs> <laughs> of course, like yes, of course. What, that's what I say. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and then that didn't work, and so. Uh, I was stuck soap on my hand. Yeah. And no water to be found. So did you move to the next plate? Yeah. Sink? I stepped over to the next plate and mm. to no avail, Zach. Yeah. Thing. 
So I, I napkin scrape. <laughs> so is this a true story? This is an embellished story. <laughs> and part of this is probably true of someone out there. Yeah, world, this has happened to someone. Not necessarily me. Right. I'm, t- I'm, I'm taking you on a journey. Okay, thank you. Not a true journey, okay. but a journey. Yes, I see. So anyways, I'm napkin scraping the water out of my hand. I mean, the lack of water. Yeah. So napkin scraping the soap out of my hand. Luckily, in this imaginary bathroom, there's a hand sanitizer station. <laughs> so I use the hand sanitizer on the way out, but I'm yeah. scarred. So the issue is that the the sink is not deep enough. It's too one. fancy for its own It's good. too fancy. And they're trying to do too much. Like, just give me a handle. Let me turn off and on the water. Because the other and issue. I just want it to be like a little teapot. Here's my handle. Here's my spout. Tip me over and pour me out. Pour me out, out. yeah. I want to know what So you is. actually want a teapot to wash your hands I mean, with. that's what it takes, Zach, to know where the handle is. So your is. dream bathroom is mm. just a trough with pitchers of water that you can pour on your hands. Yeah. Very deep. <laughs> and bars of just soap. deep and wide. There's a, there's a sink flowing deep and wide. <laughs> yeah, so here's what I'm here's what I'm uh, I'm getting here. Pick up what I'm putting down. It's, it's too nice for its own good. Here's the issue I have with the... Let it out. The, this is a safe space. Th- I know it is. This is your office. It's, yeah, it is office. <laughs> it's actually full-time coup. That's right. Uh, the activation issues, before you speak in French, but also the issue is you can't control when the water turns off. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Airports are the worst for that. Yes. Which I'm thankful, I guess, they're trying to save we us from you, germs, viruses. Yes. And yeah, save water, I presume. But the soap is still, I'm not done I washing. Wa- I need to use the water. Yeah. Like, save the water, but yeah. I still need to use well, it. Well, because then what could happen is you you wet your hands a little bit. Mm. Then you get soap. I've been there. While you're getting soap, the water turns off. Of course. So now and your not hands. Only that, but like the second you remove your hand from yeah, the splash turns off. zone. Turns off. off. And you're like, so now your hands are soapy and wet. Yeah, that's bad. And you need to wash off because you can't just no you napkin can't napkin scrape, scrape it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can't get the water back on. I know. It's like it's on a timer. Yeah, and it, and it's like it knows what you've done. It knows that you've used your splish, yeah. splick it, your splash. Define splish. Splish is like a half splash. <laughs> <laughs> splish splash. I'm taking a bath. Yeah. Uh, but sinks, Zach. <sighs> so. We need a universal sink. Yep. I think Stop. everyone should have There's, the right sink. We don't sink. need architects in the sink space. Yeah. Go build a crazy cool building that I can walk in. And I can gander at and mm. say that's beautiful. And maybe even gander. Gander. Yeah, that's a great word. Define, are you asking me to define yeah, it? Define gander. Gander's like gazing while wandering. Welcome to the Leaders <laughs> Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I am not your host, Zach Wonderbird. I am, in fact, your co-host, Coop McCullough, but I'm here with my host and our fearless leader, Zach Funderburg. Sorry, I had to steal your <laughs> No, I appreciate it. We were it. pittering. We, we were, were starting to splish. <laughs> <laughs> While we were gandering. Speaking of gandering, I gandered upon a great episode. Mm, wow, well, I knew you Which means that. I wandered and gazed upon it and at the splish. same time. And I splished. We this... should make a petition to get splish in the dictionary. Let's in get... <laughs> Get splish in the splictionary. That's right. Anyway, Cooper, this is Miss Peggy Grandy. Mm. Here's what's special about Miss Grandy is that she was the executive assistant to the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Ronaldo. As in French. <laughs> During his post-presidency year, so after he was president from 1980 to 1988, he moved back to Los Angeles and started his post-presidency office, where he still was meeting with foreign dignitaries, yes. still being a leader because he's still a figurehead. I mean, his his time wasn't over. 
He That's was right. no longer president, but he wasn't done. He wasn't done. And you should never be done either. Mm. If you have breath to breathe, you got to race to run. <laughs> That's right. I love that, Coop. Hey, you put on a tattoo. And Next post it. another one on your bicep. <laughs> yeah. It just says gun show. Is that new? <laughs> yeah, it's new. Noticed. New ink. Thanks. Wow, Thanks for good. noticing. It took you this long. Yeah. Anyway, but he, yeah, he uh, opened his post-presidency office in LA. Mrs. Grandy was right out of college, became his executive assistant, and be able to just kind of gander, if you will, will. upon his, uh, his work in that time. She wrote a book. It's called The President Will See You Now. It's a great book it's full of, title. it's a great title. She's, she's probably said that a lot of times. I'm sure she has. That's so cool. Tells amazing stories and she tells a lot of them in this podcast but one specifically that stood out to me is about whenever Ronald Reagan found out he had Alzheimer's he later in his years he's not as much in the public spotlight and he had a choice whether to tell the people or to hide it and just kind of live out the rest of his days and he chose to write a touching letter to the American people to tell them that he had this disease and it it brought in a lot of money for research for Alzheimer's and has affected a lot of people's life today and so she was the first person he he handed her the handwritten letter to the people. She found out, or did she know before? I, I'm not sure actually. Okay. I think she knew before, and this was their announcement. Yeah. But it's just a heartwarming, touching story, yeah. and there's many more like it. And there's a lot of just how did Ronald Reagan lead? So the, the episode today is the leadership lessons from the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Anyway, Coop, this is a fascinating, story filled episode, and I'm excited to share it with you. I can't wait to hear about it. Well, without further ado, Coop, here she is, Mrs. Peggy Grandy. Well, Peggy, thank you so much for being with me today and, and just getting to answer some questions for what we have about Ronald Reagan, about your experiences and, and about leadership and passing it on to the next generation. So first, why don't you just start by introducing yourself, kind of who are you and what are you up to and what was your path to get to where you are today? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me today. Peggy Grandy, born and raised in Southern California, million miles from Washington, D.C., it seemed when I was a kid, but somehow I was a kid that loved politics and presidents and government and was just, I guess, obsessed with that. Never yeah. imagined my life would actually um, intersect that path, but my dad raised me to believe that someone's got to have the job you want and it might as well be you. <laughs> so I grew up believing anything was possible possible. And um, I guess my formative years when I was in junior high, high school, and even college, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. And what an opportunity to see and learn from the best. And I guess I thought that all presidents were like that. I soon learned that that is not the case. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I thought that that was what all presidents were like. And so I just became captivated by the way he talked to America, about America. He believed in us as the American people. And we bought into that that language that he used that was optimistic and forward-looking. So never imagined I would have a chance to meet him, let alone work for him. But life has a funny way of doing things. He he, um, left the White House. He returned to Los Angeles where he opened a post-presidency office. And hearing my dad's words in my head that someone's got to have that job, I took a chance, wrote a letter to the office of Ronald Reagan. Never even thought I'd hear from them, but was called in for an interview and 
was basically hired on the spot for what I thought would be a short-term internship as I was graduating college. And at the end of that internship, the woman who had hired me actually returned to Washington, D.C., and they asked me to take her job as the executive assistant to the chief of staff. And I served in that role for about two or three years until Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant, he had had since before he was governor, retired, and they asked me to take that job. So you don't say no to a job opportunity like that, but I was six months pregnant with my first baby, wasn't quite sure how I was going to navigate that space, but um, said yes, leaned in. The Reagans were wonderful and gracious, and over the course of the next 10 years, I got married. I had three of my four children and had the opportunity of a lifetime to sit at the feet of greatness, to learn from this incredible man. I had a front row seat to history and served him then basically from 1989 when he left the White House until 1999 when he left Mm -hmm. the public eye and stayed close to he and Mrs. Reagan until his passing in 2004 and until her passing in 2016. So 27 years of my life starting as a very young person were interwoven with the lives of the Reagans and my life is forever changed and forever better because of it. And I think a lot of people in this country would say the same thing about the Reagans is that their life is a lot better off and has been changed by them. And I think this podcast even plays into your story well, too, of, as you mentioned, getting to sit at the feet of a great man and, and a great couple and getting to learn from them. So what was it like the first moment you walked in, whether it was for the interview or whether it's for the job? I know there's a funny story and you can feel free to tell it if you if you uh, are comfortable with it. I embarrassed myself. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. But what was it like first meeting uh, President Reagan? Well, I don't think anything prepares you for that moment. And especially I didn't grow up in a political family. I was not, my family didn't wine and dine with the rich and famous. We were just a very middle-class family in Southern California. My parents were teachers. My dad was a school principal and then an educator um, for most of his career. And so we were just your average middle-class family. And so nothing prepares you, not only for meeting a president, but for meeting the president, Ronald Reagan. And so I had gone to my interview at the Reagan office and thought I had prepared myself for all the interview questions, but had never even it had never even occurred to me that Ronald Reagan might actually work in the office of Ronald Reagan. And at the end of my interview, I was sitting in the lobby and the lobby doors opened and into the lobby walks Ronald Reagan, flanked by his secret service. He's got a little friend with him who I found out later was Walter Annenberg. They were off to golf that day, but he's walking toward me and I completely panic. I don't know what to do. I don't know what protocol says. I don't know what, if Secret Service is going to shoot me, arrest me. They don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm doing there. So I think, well, what would I do out of respect if the flag was passing by? <laughs> and so I stand up, I put my hand over my heart and don't even look at him because I don't want to be threatening to him. Right. <laughs> of course, Ronald Reagan, knowing him now like I do instead of walking past me or laughing at this ridiculous woman who had stood up to salute a flag, um, he walks right over to me, extends his hand, shakes my hand, looks me in the eye, and I will never forget that moment, those sparkling, twinkling blue eyes looking into me. And he had this way of connecting with people as if they were the most important person in the world at that moment. And I felt that moment. And even though I was kind of embarrassed at how it had played out, 
I was so glad I had that moment because over the next 10 years, I saw so many people have their moment of meeting him. And I saw that look in their eyes of him looking into them and really seeing them. And he had such a beautiful way of connecting with people. And so to have experienced it myself for the first time and then to see so many others experience it over the next 10 years was really special. You know, what an amazing moment that must have been. And, and you've got to you got to walk with him for years after that and during his post-presidency. But when you look back at him as a president, obviously you mentioned it, the twinkling eyes. He to the people outside of his office, he is just this mythical character, just a giant among other presidents. But what set him apart? What what made Ronald Reagan Ronald Reagan? Yeah. You know, he's been dissected a thousand ways. And one of the ways that it was my big takeaway, and I think especially working for him as a young person, I was still trying to figure out what does leadership look like? Um, how how do you lead the world, the nation? Um, how do you do that? And I guess I thought before I met him that you had to choose one or two paths. You could either choose to be strong and successful or you could be a kind, good person. And Ronald Reagan completely blew that apart because in him, we had both. And so here was somebody who was strong enough and full of resolve, went toe to toe with the Soviet Union, challenged Gorbachev to tear the wall down and the wall came down a couple of years later. But behind that was this man that had this warmth, this charm, there was softness to him. And he made me realize that you don't have to choose strong and successful or kind and good. And so in him, I think we found this combination uh, that was intriguing to us because how can somebody be so resolute and yet be so charming? (laughs) So that was one of the things I took away from him. I also realized that, you know, this whole concept of diplomacy, we think it's for the foreign service or for ambassadors or for people who are trained in the skill of diplomacy. But for him, I realized that diplomacy really just looked a lot like relationships. It looked like friendship. It wasn't political. It was very personal. And I saw the parade of people come into his post-presidency office from Gorbachev to Margaret Thatcher to post former presidents and the current president, um, world leaders, Mother Teresa, I mean, you name it, they came through the president's office in his post-presidency. And in the post-presidency, there's nothing that he can do for them diplomatically. Protocol doesn't dictate that they have to come by, but they came by because they wanted to. They had a friendship with him that had been established, some of them long before he was president, like in Margaret Thatcher's case, he had they had established a relationship long before, but it had been cultivated during his years as president, and that was something he wanted to continue. So diplomacy really looked a lot like friendship, not like statecraft, um, right. which think of it as and you you see those deep relationships that he had built and and speaking of that of that diplomacy of those people coming to him i know there's another story that you tell of a a certain cowboy hat for khrushchev or or for, for gorbachev rather uh can you tell that story Yeah. So behind the scenes, you know, there was always lots of things happening. And one of the things that I tried to do is I wanted to savor those moments. Um, You know, people always said, oh, did you keep notes all those years? I couldn't. Life was moving too fast. But what were the snapshots in my mind? And I wanted to capture those snapshots in my mind um, 
and always remember them while still being very much on point and trying to not only keep up with the president, but be three steps ahead of him, which was my job. And so it was all the little details behind the scene that I would try to take care of, making sure that he was happy, comfortable, and that everything had been thought of. So when Gorbachev was coming to town, we were taking him up to the ranch. The president was going to entertain him up at the ranch after we had a black tie dinner for him the evening before. Right. But at the ranch, the president wanted to present him with a cowboy hat which sounds simple enough. Now you're in Dallas, I think finding yeah. a cowboy would not be a problem. Yeah. Southern California, a little bit of a challenge, but the biggest question was, you know, cowboy hats are very fitted and they have in our head just right. Otherwise they sink too low or they sit too high. And so how do you figure out what size cowboy hat Gorbachev wears? And <laughs> I know right now your mind is probably going, oh, well, you just Google it and, or you email them. Well, I'm going to date myself because we had no Google. (laughs) We had no email. I mean, this was old school. Stay in the office till 10 o'clock at night. So it's eight o'clock in the morning in Moscow and Mm. try to find somebody who speaks enough English to see if they can understand. We did have a fax machine. So I drew this very crude picture of a cowboy hat with an arrow and a question mark around the band and trying to figure it out. And so um, finally, after many back and forth, found somebody who faxed me back a number and it was a really large number, like 60 something, I think it was. Right. And that's not a hat size. And then trying to figure out, okay, well, that's a Russian hat size. How do we convert that to Western hat sizes? Again, you can't put it into your Google yeah. <laughs> question. Um But thankfully, when we did the conversion, I did find a hat in L.A., President Reagan presented it to Gorbachev up at the ranch. He put it on and the hat fit perfectly. And I was very, very proud of myself. Um, Although, you know, from reading my book, the uh, pride in myself was short lived because Stetson called the next day and said, we loved being featured so prominently on Gorbachev's head. But did you know he put the hat on backwards? (laughs) I don't know these things. I live in LA. Well, neither did Gorbachev, obviously. Not his uh, his uh, experience with cowboy hats was limited, which is such a funny story. But even the little thing of like giving a gift to someone and that relationship that yeah. that continued even after his presidency, that Ronald Reagan didn't just step aside and was out of the public eye, that he continued to work and and little did the people know that those meetings that Stetson cowboy hat did a lot for the relationships for the people of the people of America with the, with Russia or the Soviets at the time. Um, And it's amazing. And I want to go back to another part of his leadership styles. He's known as the great communicator and you mentioned his softness and his charm. And if you study any of his speeches, which are all fascinating, they're all incredible because he's such an amazing storyteller. What did the great communicator mean? How did that resonate with the people and how did he use that to his strengths? Yeah. He had this way of connecting with his audience. And I think it was because when he wrote speeches, he didn't write them from the standpoint of, here's what I want to say. He would give so much thought to the audience. What, What were they in the middle of? What was their experience? What point of view or frame of mind were they coming from? And he would speak right to them. And we would see him masterfully look into the lens of the camera from the Oval Office or wherever he was speaking. And he would come into, I remember as a kid, he'd come into my living room on one of the three channels on our little dial TVs. Um, 
but you felt like he was speaking just to you. And he had this way of connecting with his audience. Now, some people said, oh, it's because he's an actor and you know, made that a, a criticism. And he said, well, I don't know how you could be a president without being an actor. Yeah. Um, and he didn't mean that he was playing a role, but actors have a way of communicating, conveying ideas and drawing in their audience. And he did that so beautifully. And some of that was his actor training, but really it was his mindset. He was very clear on what he wanted to communicate. He infused all of his speeches with the same themes and we see them over and over. It's themes of freedom and personal liberty. It's themes of um, optimism and hope for the future of America and the world. It's shining the torch of freedom to dark places all over the world and inviting these countries and these people to follow it. And so those themes were infused throughout. And so I think when there's a consistency too in the way you communicate, People already know what they're going to hear. They know what they're going to experience with Ronald Reagan. They knew that they were going to laugh because he would tell a joke, usually something self-deprecating to break the ice, to get the audience engaged, to get them laughing. Um, he would lead us in a beautiful journey of storytelling. He used facts, but he used stories to convey those facts. You know, I would say in general, the right, when they're communicating, they try to convince people and win people over by facts. And the left does such a good job of telling the story. And Ronald Reagan was unafraid to be the adult in the room and say, here's the facts, here's the things we yeah. need to face, especially on the heels of the 1970s when there were some tough choices to be made. But he would tell them in a beautiful story-like way that you were part of it, that you wanted to be part of it and that you saw a new future for yourself and for our country. Um, you know, the 1970s, obviously you're too young to remember, but taxes were high, inflation was high, unemployment was high. And worst of all, American morale was very low. And Ronald Reagan stepped into that space. And on day one, he started changing it by the words that he used. He said, it's morning in America. There's a new dawn ahead. There's a shining city on the hill and we all get to be part of it. America's best days are ahead. And yes, policies he implemented helped with all of those things, but it made people once again believe in themselves. The malaise of the 70s was over because American optimism was back. And Ronald Reagan championed that by the words he used and the policies he implemented. And when you asked him at the end of his eight years as president, what was the thing you're most proud of? It wasn't anything that he did or accomplished or any policies that he implemented, he would say, I think I made the American people believe in themselves again. And for him, that was the greatest accomplishment of those eight years. And he really did make America believe in itself again. It's amazing. And that communication, whether it from the podium or through his writing, didn't stop in his post-presidency, as you well know, is that he wrote a very famous letter to the American people after he had gotten his Alzheimer's diagnosis, which I imagine could not have been easy to do. And and I think I when I first heard about this, I was like, well, yeah, that's what you do. He wrote a letter. It's not a big deal. But then once I read the letter and I realized why he wrote it and how beautifully it was written, it was it was a lot bigger deal. So kind of what was the experience like sitting next to him while he's writing that or as it came out and watching him deal with that? Yeah, well, he wrote it himself. And so I read it for the first time in his hand, the original letter. Um, I remember holding it in my hand and as I was reading it was 
shaking, just knowing what it meant to me, to my future with him, but knowing even more so what it would mean to the nation and to the world. And I knew that this man that so many people had seen as like a crusader on the white stallion, you know, (laughs) the torch of freedom all over the world and protecting us with the shield of liberty was now just a mere mortal and he was going to be failing and we were going to eventually lose him. And just fast forwarding in my mind what this letter would mean and how crushing of a blow it would be to the nation and to the world, it was it was overwhelming. Um, and you balance that personal emotion with the professional feeling of, I have a job to do and I'm going to continue to do it and to serve him as long and as best as I can. And what a beautiful example and model he was of that as well. I mean, for him, the diagnosis was not a death sentence and he released the letter. The world started saying goodbye to him, but I was still saying good morning to him every day for the next five years. He refused to let it define him or to stop him. And certainly there were changes we made along the way. There were accommodations that had to be different, but he did not surrender to it immediately and say, well, I guess, you know, my impact is done. I can't do any more good. Um, No, he continued to soldier on. And for me, again, especially as a young person watching this, it made such an impact because he was a man who had lived life full throttle, all the way in. And even at the end, especially as a man of faith, he just believed that this was one more step in his faith journey. God had taken care of him and provided a pathway for him throughout his life. And this was just the next step on that pathway. And he was a man of faith. He trusted God that God had a plan even in this and that it could be used for good. And we see by the transparency that he and Mrs. Reagan approached this illness with how much it did help and support and provide um, so many resources for people who had been suffering with this. You know, if you know anything about Alzheimer's pre-Ronald Reagan, there wasn't much to know. It was dementia, it was senility, it was old age, but there really wasn't much known about it. And when I went to research it, um, when I first heard the diagnosis, there there was nothing about it. You couldn't Google it. Um, But even at the library, there was really nothing known about it. And so the Reagans could have kept this very private. They could have gone to the ranch, probably disappeared and let people speculate, but never know. But that wasn't their style. Um, They were true public servants. They wanted to use their experience for good. And so by writing that beautiful, heartfelt letter to the American people, it, it shone a spotlight on this devastating illness. And it was one that so many families had been suffering in silence. And there was a lot of stigma connected with it and a lot of shame. And they they took that all away in their beautiful way of, of public service by being transparent about it. And the letter is really written so beautifully. I want to read just part of it. The, the kind of the last line as he's kind of ending the letter to the diagnosis. He's told the people what the diagnosis is. He says, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. I know that for America, there will always be a bright dawn ahead. And it kind of goes back to that. It's morning in America. You know, the, yeah. the 80s are upon us. Ronald Reagan's the president. It's morning. But even through this dark time of his life, as it's leading towards the sunset, and a sunset is such beautiful imagery uh, for what this was, what was his demeanor? What was what was he like? Was he still meeting with people? And how did he handle that from a personal aspect? 
Yeah, he was. Um, so people think, and you know, I you mentioned my book earlier on, and uh, the president will see you now. I wrote it because I wanted to really talk about the importance of those post-presidency years. A lot of people think he left office, he got Alzheimer's, he died. And mm-hmm. what they don't realize is there were 15 years in there, yeah. 15 years of his post-presidency. And so the first five years, he was very active, speaking, writing, traveling. Um, very involved still in conservative politics, always being careful not to backseat drive his um, former vice president who became the president, George Bush, um, but staying engaged in the conversations of the day as, I guess, an elder statesman of that that arena. Um, But five years in, he announces to the American people that he's got Alzheimer's. And really for the next five years, even after that, he continued to come into the office to meet with people, to read, to write, um, all the things he had done before, and maybe just in a modified way. And if you know anything about Alzheimer's, it's really a pendulum. You know, it starts with mostly good, with moments of bad, and, you know, that pendulum gradually goes to good days and bad days, and then more bad days than good days. And, you know, it, it is a gradual slow, steady decline. And it's devastating to watch, but I appreciated Mrs. Reagan. During those years, we became incredibly close because we had to communicate more and more than we ever had. Um, She obviously wanted to make sure that he was being well cared for in the office. I wanted to know how things were going at home and what things she was doing that would be helpful and supportive to him. And so she was such a strong woman during those times. And for her personally, it had to have been gut-wrenching to watch, but she always put on a brave face and was steadfast in her devotion to him. And so we definitely took our our lead and our cues from her. And even in those final words to the American people, he had that sense of optimism and that, and that there is a bright dawn ahead. And that was kind of a theme for his presidency and his yeah. vision for America. And, and I would encourage everyone listening to just YouTube the Ronald Reagan City on a Hill. There's, it's like a two minute and 30 second clip of his farewell address from the Oval Office talking about the city on a hill. And it's amazing. I, it, it made me almost cry. I'll be honest. I almost cried. Uh, but for you, what was Ronald Reagan's vision? for America and how can that be applied to today? What would Ronald Reagan say if he were to give a speech about the current state of of our country? Yeah, he always believed in America. He believed in it because we the people tell the government what to do here, not the other way around. And so he believed that regardless of the occupant in the White House for four years or eight years, that this country is truly governed by we the people. And so that would always give him optimism and hope for the future. Uh, He also was very much invested in the next generation. And Mm -hmm. he loved when we would travel, he had been a teak, uh, was his fraternity. And so a lot of times he would pop by a teak house on a college (laughs) campus, which you can imagine what, how they would respond to him. Oh man. Um, But he loved speaking on college campuses. It was always important to him to connect with the next generation. And it was surprising, well, unsurprising, but it it had never happened before that the oldest president um, who would be reelected in history at the time, Ronald Reagan in 1984 campaign, his huge base of support was from people under the age of 25. 
And there was such a support for him because he did always look to the future. He always talked about the future. That was important to him. He was playing his role right now, but he knew that there was so much of America that would continue on after him. And so he was very invested people. I mean, even the fact that he chose a very young woman to sit outside his office and to serve him. I, I'm sure I made tons of mistakes that come from being young and green and just trying to figure things out. Um, but the fact that he would invest in me that way and have a belief in a young person that I could serve him with excellence and live up to the standards that um, he had always had. He was somebody who led with a sense of loyalty. I felt like he gave me his trust and his loyalty before I necessarily even earned it. He didn't demand it. He didn't ask for it. He gave it to me first. And what does that kind of leadership do? It makes you want to reciprocate. I never wanted to let him down or disappoint him, not because I was afraid of him, but because I cared so much about him that I never wanted to tarnish his reputation or embarrass him or miss something that might endanger him um, or damage his reputation. Yeah, it's amazing. And and his emphasis on the next generation is definitely inspiring to me and my generation. I would give anything to ask him a few questions uh, <laughs> and be able to post on this podcast. But I want to thank you for, for being his voice now and passing that on. And we've talked a lot about him, his presidency, his leadership. I want to ask you a question. And, and it's a question we love asking to all of our leaders that we have on is what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? If you were to go back and look at young Peggy, she's about to walk in, she's about to put her hand over her heart as Ronald Reagan walks by, what would you tell that person? Oh, um, you know, I'd probably say exactly what my dad said. You know, somebody's got to have the job you want. It might as well be you to dream big, to be bold, to lean in, um, especially when I talk to young women. Um, sometimes they feel like they have to choose, you know, do I want to be a good wife and a mom? And do I want to have that life or do I want to have a professional career? And I've been so blessed to be able to do both. You can do it all. Sometimes you can't do it all at the exact same time, but don't be afraid to lean into a career, lean into something you love. In my case, you know, I never imagined that I would be able to, to do both. And yet I had been there so long and had such a great connection with the president that when I told him that I was pregnant and was going to need some time off or be leaving, they said, what would it take to get you back? And so my schedule was adjusted a little bit and it was, they were very accommodating. And so I, I would have missed so many wonderful years had I backed out of that situation thinking, I don't know if I can do both. And so to be able to have my kids grow up, three of my four kids were born while I was working for the president. And so Ronald Reagan was like another grandfather to them. And so that opportunity would have been missed had I backed out instead of leaning in. And so go full throttle into life. You know, my father, unfortunately, he passed away actually when I was working for the president as well. I was in my 20s. He was in his 50s. And he just gave me, I guess, a sense of urgency about life. And not to be morbid, but life can be very short. And I don't want to look back with any regret. And thankfully, even at my age, I look back and I am so glad that I've leaned into life, that I've taken every opportunity at full throttle. Um, 
I, my big test is always, if fear is the only reason for not doing something, then that's not a reason. There might be other factors that make me say no to something, but if I'm only not doing something because I'm afraid of it, then that's not a good enough reason for me. And so I force myself constantly to be challenged, to grow, to lean in still today to things that terrify me. (laughs) And there's a lot of things that still terrify me, but I do them, but I do them because I want to listen to my own advice. I love it. Life is short and go full throttle, go for it. And somebody has got to have the job that you want. Why not you? Hey, thank you so much for, for that wisdom. And first, before we leave, I want you to sell your book. Where can we get it? What's it called? And give a little sales pitch for your book. Oh, well, thank you. Of course, I, my publisher would love it. Well, here's my very marked up copy that I speak yeah. from. It's called The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. It's not a political book. It's basically a character sketch of this incredible man. It's in essence me putting on a set of glasses and showing you exactly what I saw what I witnessed, how he changed my life, the impact he had on my life during those 10 years. So it's my story walking along his, but seeing him through the eyes of somebody who's young and just stepping into the world and learning the world from a man who had shined on the world stage. And so it's, it'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. Um, and in the end, hopefully it makes you feel full of optimism for the future of America, just like Ronald Reagan would have won it. Because at the end, of course, he died and we cried, but that was not the end. And Ronald Reagan left a piece of himself in each one of us. And that is the beautiful legacy that we all need to reassemble as a mosaic honoring his life. And even though he is gone, it is still mourning in America. We love it. Well, Peggy, thank you so much for your time. No, what were you gonna say? Well, I was going to leave you with my favorite Reagan quote, which I think so much um, of, of what he thought, how he saw the world and his final words basically to us, the 1992 Houston National Convention at the R- for the RNC. It was, we didn't know at the time, but it would be one of his final public speeches. And I love what he said. He said, whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, may it say that I appeal to your best hopes, not to your worst fears to your confidence rather than your doubts. And so much of life today and politics especially is driven by fear and doubt. And may we be leaders like Ronald Reagan that choose to lean in with confidence and find the best hopes in people and always believe that that is the best way to live with confidence and best hopes and never with fear and doubt. I love it. If you have any time, go look up any Ronald Reagan speech. You will be encouraged. You will laugh. You will you'll be inspired and you will love your country. And I think, is that the same speech where uh, he brought out that they had uh, compared Bill Clinton to uh, Thomas Jefferson? And he he kind of quipped that. You know, I knew Thomas Jefferson. I worked with Thomas Jefferson and Governor. And you no, are no Thomas Jefferson. You're yeah. no Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> but he always brought that exactly. laughter, that humor, but then also the the hope and the optimism that you read. Um, exactly. He's an inspiring man. So, exactly. Peggy, thank you so much for your time. This has been an honor, and it's been so thank fun. Thank you, and I would love to hear from any of your listeners, especially if they read the book available hardback paper book, paperback, audiobook, and ebook. Um, I read the audiobook. I know a lot of people are doing those these days, but I would love to hear from anybody who reads the book. I always try to get back to every email. So find that's how I got her. You just Peggy connect Peggy on LinkedIn. 
Yeah, I know. See, Zach? Yeah, I replied. <laughs> and you thank did. you so much for having me on today. Thank you for all you are doing to lead the next generation of great leaders. I admire your work and applaud you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. That means a lot. 